I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, the weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan, nonprofit institution chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. We've had a number of new developments in the ongoing Mueller investigation and related criminal investigations. And we have, joining We the People today, two of America's leading experts on the impeachment clause of the Constitution. Both of them have written important new books about impeachment, and we are so honored to have them to debate the founders' conception of what counted as an impeachable offense and whether or not any of the recent allegations might qualify. Alan Dershowitz is Felix Frankfurter Professor of Law Emeritus at Harvard Law School and the author of the new book, The Case Against Impeaching Trump, published earlier this summer. He's been called the nation's most peripatetic civil liberties lawyer and one of its most distinguished defenders of individual rights. Alan, it is an honor to have you back on We the People. Well, I love being on and I love your center and I follow everything you do. So it's it's my honor and and thank you for having me. Thank you so much for that. And Joshua Matz is of counsel at Gupta Wessler and Kaplan, where his uh, practice includes appellate litigation and constitutional law. He is author of To End a Presidency, The Power of Impeachment, which he co-wrote with Professor Lawrence Tribe, uh, publisher of the Take Care blog and a returning champion to We the People as well. Joshua, it is wonderful to talk with you again as well. Thank you for having me. And I just echo Alan in saying that I think the world of the work that you do, and I'm excited to discuss the Constitution with you both today. Great. Well, let's plunge right in. Uh, Joshua, bec- uh, you and uh, Professor Tribe wrote your book first, and you were here at the Constitution Center a, a few months ago to discuss it. Uh, in the New York Times recently, in Adam Liptak's piece, When is an Offense Impeachable Look to the Framers?, you said uh, the main and possibly only form of pre-inaugural conduct that would properly qualify as an impeachable offense is conduct relating directly to the acquisition of the presidential office. Not every impeachable offense is a crime and not every crime is an impeachable offense. Tell us more about your views about the framers' notion of impeachable offenses. The framers designed the impeachment power because they recognized that in creating a new form of government, Uh, an empowered national government with an energetic, singular chief executive, there was a concern that if a president uh, went off the rails and if the president took too broad a conception of what he could do while in office, the entire experiment uh, that they were attempting, a new form of government, would be imperiled. And so when the framers designed the impeachment power, what they really had in mind were offenses by the president, conduct by the president that imperiled the legitimacy of the democratic system as a whole. Uh, And when we look at how they talked about it and what kinds of things they deemed impeachable, which we know include treason and bribery, as well as a vaguer phrase, high crimes and misdemeanors, you know, we see that they, these types of uh, offenses involve corruption, betrayal, uh, or an abuse of power that subverts core tenets of the U.S. governmental system. Uh, Generally speaking, they involve intentional evil deeds that pose a terrible threat of injury to the nation as a whole. Uh, And they're the kinds of misdeeds that are so obviously wrong that nobody could genuinely profess surprise at being impeached for committing them. Uh, Or put differently, they didn't have in mind impeachment by ambush. They They were thinking about the kinds of evil deeds that anyone would realize that you can't leave this person in power now that they've committed it. 
And so it's by reference to that understanding of what they were doing uh, that I made those remarks to the New York Times. Generally speaking, before a president takes office, he can't abuse or misuse the powers of that position. Um, at the same time, it would be most perverse to say that somebody could engage in illegal activity that results in them or that helps them obtain the presidential office. And then when found out, keep the fruits of their own, uh, as it were, fraudulent conduct or traitorous conduct. Uh, the framers said that explicitly in reference uh, to someone who sought to corrupt the Electoral College. And in fact, one of the most frequently cited examples of an impeachable offense was corruption of the Electoral College and the Electoral System. And it's no small, it's no, it's no great leap from that understanding of high crimes and misdemeanors to think that if a president breaks the law and betrays the nation and corrupts the electoral process and thereby obtains power uh, and is discovered, uh, and, and if the American people come to understand that that's what, what has happened, that it really can't be the case that that person should be allowed to remain in office uh, as an illegitimate leader of our democratic system. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for that. Alan, in the introduction to your book, you disagree with professors Tribe and Matz, and you argue that uh, only crimes are impeachable offenses and not all crimes are impeachable offenses. Tell us more about your conception of what counts as an impeachable offense, according to the framers. Well, first of all, I want to explain why I wrote the book. I wrote my book, The Case Against Impeaching Trump, because of my dear friend and longtime colleague, Larry Tribe, who called for President Trump's impeachment even before he took office, and then within weeks of him taking office, wrote an op-ed piece saying that he must be impeached and the process of impeachment must be undertaken. And because I felt that that did not sufficiently inform the American public about what the criteria for impeachment were, I decided at that point to write a book. Having said that, I don't disagree with a single thing that my colleague has just now said, but remember that what my colleague said was that a president could be impeached if he, and I'm quoting him now, breaks the law or engages in illegal activity that corrupts the election. I agree with that. I agree, by the way, that an impeachable offense can occur in the run-up to the election, that if a president breaks the law, commits bribery, treason, or other high crimes and misdemeanors in an effort, successful effort, to become president, he can be impeached. So we, we might end the debate right here, except that I know that uh, my colleagues disagree ultimately with the concept that it has to be breaking the law or an illegal activity. And that's where I think the rubber meets the road and where I think the debate really takes place. Um, I agree with your conception of what the framers had in mind, but the framers didn't write in the Constitution that a person can be impeached for actions that, quote, imperil democracy, which is what you say, or if the person goes off the rails. They could easily have written criteria for impeachment that were broader and did say anybody who imperils democracy or acts corruptly to undermine democracy should be impeached. That would be perfectly rational. But instead, they introduced much, much more rigid and rigorous uh, criteria. Um, they talked about uh, tre treason, which they defined in the Constitution, bribery, which was well-defined at common law, and other high crimes and misdemeanors, not or uh, misdemeanors. And my understanding then is that a crime is a necessary but not sufficient condition for impeachment. I think all the elements that we've just discussed become sufficient conditions. That is, it can't just be a crime. It can't be lying about whether you had an affair in the Oval Office, or it can't be what Alexander Hamilton did, 
having an adulterous affair, which was a felony while he was Secretary of the Treasury, and then paying extortion funds from his own money. But if Alexander Hamilton had paid the extortion funds from Treasury money, that might very well have been an impeachable offense. So where we disagree is not on the ultimate criteria are. I think you need to have all the things that have just been stated. But in addition, you need to find a specific crime. And that's why the criteria specify a trial in the Senate. They have procedures for the trial. The chief justice presides when it's the president. And I think you have to look at the language of the framers and you have to look at what was intended at the time of the framing and understood at the time of the framing. And my view, and I, I, I think that the, the book that we're talking about, uh, Larry, and your book are, is a brilliant book. I think everybody should read it. It states a view somewhat different from my own. And I think reasonable people could honestly disagree as to whether the history shows you need or don't need to have a specified crime in addition to either treason or, or um, a bribery. I think you do. You think we don't. And I think that's where the debate really should occur. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that, Joshua. To, to join the debate, can you give us examples of either attempts to undermine democracy that are not criminal, that you think would be impeachable, or of crimes beyond treason and bribery that you think uh, might be impeachable to uh, emphasize your differences with Alan? I'd be happy to do that. You know, and I, and I, should, I should start by saying I think Alan's book is a great contribution as well. You know, th these are not easy issues. And here, as in so many other places, the framers were less clear than they might have been. You know, I, I do think, however, uh, I do think that the, the sort of decisive weight of the available evidence and argument uh, supports the view that you don't need to have committed a specific crime in order to engage in high crimes and misdemeanors. Uh, we see that when the framers discuss at length their concern that the president might commit great and dangerous offenses against the nation uh, for which no remedy might be had. Um, but I think we actually see it most clearly. And Jeff, and then I will answer your question more precisely. But I think we see it most clearly in the fact that the early Congresses, which were setting up the powers of the federal government, didn't create and didn't even attempt to create and really never even discussed creating a body of federal criminal law that would be adequate to the task of making a crime most of the kinds of presidential misconduct that the framers spoke about at the Constitutional Convention. And indeed, the framers designed a federal government that lacked the ability, it lacked the delegated and enumerated powers to make criminal many of the things they talked about. And so there's this weird mismatch in Allen's view which is that the framers said a president could be impeached and removed from office only if he or she commits a crime, mm -hmm. but then Congress was deprived of the ability to create a broad body of federal criminal law, never attempted to do so, and has in fact never passed a series of criminal statutes addressing some of the kinds of misconduct that the framers themselves were most concerned about. I mean, that's true even with respect, for example, to bribery where there wasn't a generally applicable bribery law outside the context of bribing judicial officials into the mid-19th century. And you really would have been thinking about bribery in a more capacious sense, as something that undermines and corrupts the integrity of the federal government. And you know that, that has practical consequences. I mean, if we take Allen's view seriously, you know, in principle, the president could simply refuse to defend the nation against an invasion by Russia. Mm -hmm. And as long as he wasn't committing treason within the meaning of Article 3 of the Constitution, there'd be nothing to be done about it. 
the president could deliberately order U.S. citizens to massacre innocent civilians abroad. He could announce that he will pardon anyone who hatefully, you know, and intentionally murders an undocumented migrant or a gay person uh, or anyone who uh, unleashes weaponry at uh, the, ri- the rallies held by his political rivals. There's sort of no end to the ways in which presidents can misuse the powers vested in them by the Constitution uh, in ways that would be extraordinarily destructive of democracy, but that wouldn't qualify as crimes within the meaning of federal criminal law. And it just seems peculiar to think that the framers who put so much thought into this power failed mm-hmm. so miserably at preventing the kind of renegade president that they obviously had in mind. Well, that's an interesting point. Uh, of course, you omit the fact that there were two sources of criminal law at the time of the framing. The first and most important, of course, were the laws of the 13 colonies, which were sovereign uh, entities. They all had extensive uh, criminal codes. Uh, the Virginia Criminal Code was drafted in part by uh, Thomas Jefferson. Uh, the Massachusetts Code was <clears throat> uh, hundreds of pages long. I have a copy of it. In my uh, library, they defined all of these crimes. But in addition, there was the federal common law of crimes, which until 1815 was regarded as governing. And it was borrowed extensively from British common law. Everybody knew what bribery meant under the common law of bribery. And I never suggested that the crimes that have to be committed are limited to federal crimes because you're 100% right. We didn't really have federal criminal laws extensively on the books until after the framing, but we did have the common law. It was only in 1815 in a case called U.S. versus uh, Hudson that the Supreme Court held that you couldn't have a federal common law, and that stimulated the enactment of federal criminal statutes. Today, of course, the federal criminal law governs much of what was even state law through RICO and conspiracy and uh, other uh, kind of cross-border type of crimes. But to address the issue of all these terrible things the president could do, in my book, I give an example of the president giving Alaska back to uh, Russia. Uh, um, uh, You know, Putin coming and saying, look, we took the Crimea back and now we want Alaska back. And if a president gave Alaska back, assuming he had the authority to do it, much like Jefferson had the power to uh, accept uh, the Louisiana Purchase, I agree that would not be an impeachable offense. He would never be reelected, and he would be chased from office basically by uh, political means and political accountability. But no, that's not a crime. That's a political act. Some of the other things you mentioned, ordering the shooting of uh, aliens, of course, would be uh, crimes. They'd be very serious crimes. And of course, murder or accessory to murder, conspiracy to murder, inciting murder, uh, would all be the kinds of crimes that could be impeachable. But, you know, we're both right in this sense that you can come up with hypotheticals that would persuade me that the person should be impeached and that I would have to tell you are not covered by the impeachment uh, powers because the Constitution is incomplete. And then I can come up with examples, uh, for example, of Professor Lickman, who said the president should be impeached because Uh, Getting out of the climate accord is a crime against humanity. We don't want that. We don't want the criteria for impeachment to enter into the domain of political differences, no matter how wrong we think the differences are. And I think some of the policy decisions made by this administration are abominable. And I've opposed them from day one. Nobody should confuse what I'm writing with support for this administration. 
on almost any of its policies, I'm making a strictly constitutional argument. And I think you're absolutely right when you say there's no perfect answer. There are gaps in my approach. There are gaps in your approach. And I would finally respond by talking about the principle of lenity. And I know we'll disagree about that. But when you have a constitutional provision that imposes some kind of a punitive impact, and I know you say it's not punitive, it's forward-looking. I've read your book very carefully. But it has a punitive effect to eliminate somebody from office. You do have to read the constitutional text narrowly. You have to read it in terms of lenity. That is, by resolving reasonable differences against a broad conception of what the power entails. I know your answer. Your answer is this is uh, impeachment is supposed to be preventive and proactive and future looking, not past looking. But if that's what the framers had in mind, they wouldn't have used terms like um, um, uh, treason and bribery and other high crimes and misdemeanors. They would have used future looking terms. So I take literally the words of the Constitution, and I think they have to be applied literally, even if they bring about results that uh, violate my conceptions of good policy and your conceptions of good policy. Well, of course, I don't. I doubt very much that we're in disagreement about the importance of taking the words of the Constitution seriously. You know, I think the the challenge is that the framers designed this power for a reason. They were concerned that presidents would use their powers in ways that imperil the democratic project. And in thinking about how to give meaning to words whose meaning is not always self-evident, it's helpful to look at the structure of the Constitution and at the original public meaning and how these terms were debated in context. And here, at the constitutional, and I assume that we're on the same page about that, you know, I agree with you. I think we actually have quite a bit of agreement that you have to care about lenity. That was why I emphasized that you should never have impeachment by ambush. It should be the kind of misconduct that everyone would realize could you subject you to this. You know, I might give as an example along those lines, if President Trump came out tomorrow and said, as a matter of federal criminal law, I will pardon anybody who engages in violence against an undocumented migrant because I don't want them in the country. That use of the pardon power, unless you had some very broad conception of conspiracy or aiding and abetting, probably would not be a crime. But it seems bizarre to think that the framers would have anticipated a society where the president could use their power that way. And we all just had to live with it and use other political checks and balances, which is what you've described until the next election. Let me give you so when I think about, so when I, so when I think, sorry, if I could just finish the thought, you know, so you, you know, so I, I completely hear you when you say that there was a richer body of state criminal law at the time, you know, although query whether it makes sense for these states to define the contours of a federal power and how weird it would be that something could be impeachable if done in one state, but not another. Um, and that there was something of a, of a broader uh, federal criminal law in the form of the common law at the framing, although that ended almost immediately. But when you think about the broad discretionary powers given to the president, you know, and I think we see this, for example, in Nixon's case, where some of the misconduct that was alleged in the obstruction article uh, passed by the House committee targeted the manner in which he exercised his supervisory powers over federal uh, intelligence and, uh, agencies and law enforcement agencies, the president has the ability to use those sorts of powers in ways that just are outside the compass of the criminal law and in which it would be very difficult for Congress to try to write criminal law, but mm -hmm. in ways that can really undermine the democratic order. And while it's true, as you point out, that you know my position and yours have slippage, You'll have some very uncomfortable hypotheticals. I have Alan Lichtman. 
uh, and his hypotheticals, which I obviously I, I do not agree with and think are quite poorly designed. But, but you know, I think what that points up is that there is ultimately a political judgment to be made here. And what you're saying is, you know, political judgments are tricky. And so what we need to do is to put the criminal code in as a baseline. And mm. you need to at least show a violation of the criminal code to discipline the political judgment. Right. But I'm not even convinced that that works, because as we point out in our book, many crimes wouldn't be impeachable. And the definition of what counts as a crime is itself often subject to controversy, as you yourself are a master of demonstrating. And so I think you know, we're, we're in a realm where political judgments are unavoidable. And I think saying that you can only remove someone for violating the technical terms of a criminal code artificially and kind of unnaturally limits the impeachment power without much countervailing benefit. Well, I think the countervailing benefit is you have a check and balance. Uh, I agree with you that political considerations do come into play, but in my view, they come into play only after non-political considerations have been satisfied. That is, you have a prerequisite. You have to first prove a high crime and misdemeanor or treason and bribery, and then you can allow political considerations to come into play. I think that's what happened with Nixon. If you look at the charges made against Nixon, and I think Nixon's impeachment was the only legitimate one against the president or under our constitutional. I think we will agree that Andrew Johnson's was not appropriate, that what he did was constitutionally permissible, though it was terrible, and he helped he undercut Reconstruction. And what Clinton did, although a crime, was a low crime, not a high crime. I think that uh, to, to counter your example, it's a very good example, about what if the president said he would pardon everybody, and he practically did that when he pardoned Joe Arpaio. I mean, that wasn't quite as yes. bad as that, but it was a pretty bad example. Um, but what if uh, President Kennedy uh, had said, look, I'm going to pardon every single uh, civil rights demonstrator who was arrested in the South, even for committing crimes that are legitimate crimes in the South? I'm simply not going to tolerate that. It's the policy of this administration to make sure that civil rights demonstrators can go forward. I think we would all agree that that should not be an impeachable offense, but I think many people south of the Mason-Dixon line would have said that undercuts the rule of law, it undercuts democratic governance, it substitutes political policies for uh, the policies of, of the law, and we'd have an interesting debate about that. Look, I think we've come to some very, very substantial agreements that neither of our positions are flawless, that we're not going to be able to find out in the end who's right, uh, because we're not going to have an impeachment probably that doesn't involve uh, something we can agree is a, a, a criminal act. It'll probably never happen. And that the real question is, as a matter of constitutional policy, is it better to err on the side of having some protection, namely the requirement of crime, before the political considerations come into play? Or is it better to have an open-ended political decision-making that only focuses on the very good points you make about undercutting democracy. I think that's a very important and reasonable debate. And I wish we could have it civilly as we are today on this show around the country. It's an impossible debate to have on Fox, CNN, MSNBC, and many of the other stations. Because on those shows, they ask only one question. Which side are you on? It's my grandmother's question. When the Dodgers won the World Series in 1955 and I came home and I said, Grandma, the Brooklyn Dodgers won. She says, yeah, but was it good or bad for the Jews? That was her <laughs> only concern. And today the question is, yeah, but is it good or bad for Trump? Is it good or bad for Democrats? Is it good or bad for Republicans? I think you and I have had a very good debate about whether it's good or bad for the Constitution. And I think in the end, 
any reasonable person listening to this debate should come away saying it's a complicated question and it's not completely clear. And there's one other issue I just want to touch on because it's so fascinating. And that is you take the position, of course, there's no judicial review of the criteria for impeachment. And I pose, I think, this really interesting hypothetical of what if Trump or anybody else were impeached for a non-crime, for you know, miscarriage of office, and removed, and he refused to leave. He said, no, I'm not going anywhere. The Congress applied an improper constitutional criteria. Wouldn't you acknowledge that that case might well have to get before the justices? Because if you had a standstill, Congress saying he's removed, and the president remaining in the White House, only one institution could resolve the issue of whether or not you need a crime for there to be an impeachable and removable offense. Josh, I'm going to let you answer that. And then I have a few questions of my own in this wonderful debate that doesn't require a moderator. What do you, what do you think of Alan's question about whether yeah. uh, the uh, decision to impeach could itself be judicially reviewable before the Supreme Court? So Alan said so many interesting things that I hope you won't mind that I want to just address one of them first before I answer that question, which is he emphasized, and I agree with him, that there are aspects of this that are not completely clear. You know, one one concern, of course, is that these often are tricky issues. Uh, and it's easy, you know, it can be, it is, it is in fact the case that there are some hard political and legal and constitutional judgments here. But that fact can't be and shouldn't be used as a basis for saying, well, because it's also complicated and because it's so difficult to know, the president needs to be given essentially sort of infinite latitude because how could the president ever know whether what he did was or wasn't properly impeachable? You know, and there's this phenomenon that I've noticed lately, which I think Alan has to some extent uh, been a part of, that I think of as the kind of incredible shrinking impeachment power where, you know, in the Clinton years, there's an argument that you can't impeach the president for private conduct. Under Trump, there's an argument that you can't impeach the president for conduct where they, in fact, use their official powers. Then mm -hmm. you can't impeach the president unless there's a crime. Um, and as Alan would, I'm sure, happily talk a great deal about, there are important limits on federal criminal law, in particular relating to demonstrating corrupt or improper intent on the part of the defendant. And it can be exceptionally difficult to establish those intent requirements. Mm -hmm. um, or Alan might even take the position that these laws don't apply at all uh, to the president in the exercise of certain official powers. Mm -hmm. And so you sort of end up in this weird position where there's a power that appears to be a big deal, that the framers certainly thought was a big deal, that you can really barely use anywhere because you can't use it for private conduct, you can't use it for exercises of power, you can only use it for crimes, except you then define crimes and criminal law as applied to the president almost into non-existence. And, you know, I, and, and I should emphasize, I'm, I'm no big advocate that impeachment is the answer to every problem. And the book that I wrote with Larry sounds many cautionary notes. Um, but one of the things that I do worry about is, you know, impeachment is, is meant to solve a particular problem. And to the extent we're choosing among interpretations, one of which renders it almost utterly unable to solve that problem, and one of which comes with some difficult judgments to make on the margins. I, I do think that there's a need for a more robust conception than Alan might offer of what the impeachment power can do. And, and, and I would emphasize just as one last point on that note, you know, Alan has written eloquently about, about the dangers of criminalizing politics and of talking too much about criminal law and of criminal conduct and thinking about how our political system works. But when you insist that only a crime can be impeachable 
and that we can't think about presidential misconduct outside the vocabulary of the criminal code when we're thinking about what might be removable, that actually contributes in a very substantial way to jamming all of our political debates in a criminal law framework. And so there's this perverse outcome that I think Alan might be uncomfortable with, given that he and I share a concern about an overcriminalization of politics. Um, and then because I, and then because and then because I did promise I would answer your question, um, and I'll just be very short. I, I am fairly skeptical that judicial review would be appropriate. Uh, the Constitution assigns this power to the Senate and to the House. It says they shall have the sole power, and it doesn't, by its terms, contemplate any judicial review. In fact, the framers considered and specifically rejected the involvement of the Supreme Court in impeachment for a host of reasons. And my guess is that ultimately this is a political judgment that, that really does stop with Congress and that the Supreme Court is likely to take that view as well. Well, first of all, it's no answer to say that the framers didn't contemplate judicial review of impeachment. They didn't contemplate judicial review of anything. There's no provision in the Constitution for judicial review. Uh, Chief Justice John Marshall invented it in Marbury versus Madison, and it's uh, progeny. What he said is, look, we have no choice. If you have a statute and or an action of Congress and you have the words of the Constitution and there's a conflict, uh, either one of them has to prevail or there has to be an institution for deciding it. And that's why I structured my hypothetical. And I, I'm really proud of that hypothetical of a president who refuses to leave. And then, just like Bush versus Gore, where nobody would have imagined the Supreme Court would enter into a decision about how you count chads in Florida. And I think we would all agree it was a terrible decision to enter into that uh, case. But um, but uh, I think the court would inevitably, without any option, have to weigh in. It might weigh in by simply saying in the end that it's up to Congress. And if Congress makes a mistake, this president has to abide by it. But uh, it might not do that. And as far as making the impeachment power naked, I don't agree with that. I think Nixon was the one example in our history where a president should have been and would have been properly impeached. He committed high crimes, numerous high crimes, paying hush money to witnesses, telling subordinates to lie to the FBI, um, uh, destroying evidence. And he also destroyed, tried to destroy democratic governance. It's the paradigmatic case. And it fits your criteria perfectly because everybody knew it was impeachable, including Richard Nixon, who voluntarily left office because he knew otherwise he'd be impeached and removed. So I think impeachment under my conception remains a powerful tool to be used in Nixon-like situations, but not in Clinton-like situations. And I have to tell you, I wish Hillary Clinton had been elected president because they would have moved to her impeachment on day one. I would have written a book called The Case Against Impeaching Hillary Clinton. In fact, my, my publisher printed an alternate cover called The Case Against Impeaching Hillary Clinton <laughs> just to make the point that I would be making the same arguments for uh, Hillary Clinton and my question of always is, would other people be making the same arguments in favor of a broader use of the impeachment power? And, you know, that's a fair question to ask. And I think to avoid having to answer that question, you need a safeguard. In my view, the framers put in the Constitution the safeguard, the requirement of a trial by the Senate and conviction. That word is used, conviction after trial. Those are words having to do with crime. And then the Constitution says that the president can be tried. It implies after he leaves office, which strongly suggests that it would be a crime that he would be impeached and removed for, and then he could be tried again because it's not double uh, jeopardy. But these are, again, great debate, great debatable issues. And it's been a real thrill for me to participate with 
such a brilliant uh, expert who's done such extraordinary research. My recommendation to all your listeners is read both books side by side, make your own decision, come to your own conclusion, try to be as objective as possible, and ask yourselves, what is the better constitutional approach? Some of you will agree with my colleagues, maybe some of you will agree with me, and even if not, I think you'll learn something in the process. This is wonderful. If we have you for just, I think, uh, 10 more minutes, Alan, I just want to put on the table whether, um, under what circumstances you agree or disagree that the current allegations against President Trump might or might not be impeachable. In your book, Alan, you say, uh, imagine Trump called Vladimir Putin and said the following, hey, Vlad, do I have a deal for you? I want to be elected president and you want to get rid of the Majinsky sanctions, which I don't like. You should help me get elected by giving me dirt you already have on Hillary Clinton, because that would be a better chance to get rid of the sanctions, which I disapprove of. Of course, that didn't occur, you said. But if it had been, because it is not a federal crime to collude with Russia, it should not be impeachable and he should not be impeached for the political sin of colluding with a hostile foreign power. Joshua, I want to begin with you. What do you make of Alan's hypothetical? And if uh, completely hypothetically, uh, Trump did call Putin and say, help me in order to get me elected president, do you believe that would be an impeachable offense or not? Yes. Well, of course, we we are in the realm of hypotheticals. Uh, Alan has written a very strong case against impeaching the president. Uh, I am perhaps more moderate. I think the president may have potentially committed impeachable offenses, although I think that the jury is still out and there are tough judgments ahead. Uh, And that even if he has done so or may have done so, the question of whether it would be wise or prudent or better for the country for an impeachment to go ahead is a different and in some respects more important question. And I want to emphasize that just because I wouldn't want listeners to take the to, to get the sense, you know, that you brought on someone pro-impeachment and anti. I think I think we both think that there are hard questions here, um, both about whether he may have committed impeachable offenses and about whether impeachment is a good idea. Uh, and I, I've actually written a fair bit suggesting that there's a real need for caution here. But in terms of your hypothetical in particular, you know, I have to be honest, that to me sounds like a paradigmatic case for impeachment. Uh, I, I think the idea that the American public could go on knowing that the president of the United States had potentially come into power by virtue of deliberate and knowing conspiracy with the leader of a hostile foreign power to undermine our political system and destroy belief in the integrity of our electoral process is really hard to stomach. You know, and Alan is sort of forced to that conclusion because he imposes this view that you must have a crime and because he takes an unbelievably narrow view of the applicable provisions of the federal criminal law. You know, I I guess I just don't see it that way for the reasons we've already talked about. You know, I mean, think about it in some respects. Think of it this way. You know, imagine if Nixon had done everything that we now know he did, but hadn't gotten caught. In that circumstance, you know, the American Republic probably would have survived. But once it became known to the public, once everyone knew what Nixon had done, if he had been allowed to remain in office... You know, the damage would have been incalculable because it would have set a precedent in the American national understanding of what our democracy is and of how it works that would have just been unbelievably corrosive to the entire project of the Constitution. I think the exact same thing would be true if the entire American people were to know to a near certainty the facts that you've hypothesized here. And to say that the the impeachment power can't reach that circumstance, that we must continue to live with a man exercising extraordinary power, who we know to have betrayed the country and to obtain the office by corrupt means, 
would be an unforgivable uh, and unjustified burden to impose on the American people and would cause incalculable lasting damage to the democratic system. Well, but you're not taking on my hypothetical. I wrote my hypothetical with great, great precision. Um, under my hypothetical, uh, what the candidate does is call the leader of another country and says to him, if you already have material that you have obtained, uh, treat me like you would treat the New York Times or the Washington Post. Give me the material you have. There's nothing criminal about that at all. It's just as constitutionally permissible for a candidate to get dirt on an opposing candidate that another country has than it would be if somebody called The Guardian um, and got it from The Guardian or got it from, you know, from a political point of view, it's a very, very different case. But from a legal point of view, I purposely structured it so that there's a no crime. I purposely wanted to pick the hardest possible hypothetical because everybody would say that this man does not deserve to be president. But what he did, you know, if, if you take Noam Chomsky seriously, he recently said on Democracy Now! that, are you kidding? Uh, Russia influencing the uh, election? Russia didn't influence the election. Israel did. Uh, it was Israel's fault that Trump got elected. Israel played more of a role in influencing the election. You'd get other people on the hard left saying other countries played uh, a greater role. We know that we've played a role in influencing elections uh, from Chile to you name it. Uh, so many, so many other countries. Uh, that happens. And it doesn't necessarily, if it's done legally, uh, undercut the process of democracy. It would certainly cause a reasonable person to vote against that person. The reason I set the hypothetical up the way I did is to create the possibility of a slippery slope. If you say that's impeachable, what's next? And where do you stop? And where, wh what, when do you turn things into criminal? Look, I agree with your point. You made a very, very good point, a very interesting point, that I'm trying to have my cake and eat it. I'm trying to both narrow the criminal law, because I don't want to see it used politically, and yet I'm using the criminal law as a backstop. That is a very powerful argument against my position. It is an inevitable consequence of my position, and I worry about it because I don't want to see the criminal law expanded in order to expand the impeachment power. And in the end, uh, the result that I find least unsatisfactory is a narrow criminal law in which it's better that 10 guilty people go free, even if it's the president of the United States, than one person be wrongfully committed, and an impeachment power which basically says the same. I might not use 10, I might use two instead of 10. Better for two presidents who should be impeached not to be impeached than for one president who shouldn't be impeached properly to be impeached. And so, yes, I'm more cautious than you are. You have a broader view than I have. And these are reasonable uh, disagreements. The only question I would ask you, and I would ask it more to Larry than to you, is would you pass the shoe on the other foot test? Would you both have made, been making the same argument and written the same book if Hillary Clinton had been elected president and the efforts were being made to impeach her because of the uh, modem that she had, because of Benghazi, you name all the fake arguments they are making against Hillary Clinton, and I think they're primarily fake arguments, but they're taken seriously by 40% of Americans. Would you have written the same book or would you have written a book closer to my own book? Uh, that's the challenge that I put to everybody, the shoe on the other foot test. I put that challenge to Justice Scalia and his four colleagues in Bush versus Gore, and they failed that test. Not a single one of those five would have voted the same way had it been Gore versus Bush, not Bush versus Gore. And I get very worried when people construct constitutional arguments to fit a particular person or a particular party rather than 
to fit uh, eternal constitutional criteria that hopefully will bring our constitution into the next century and the century after that. I want to make it clear I'm not accusing you or your co-author of doing that. I'm just asking the question, do you think you would both pass the shoe on the other foot test? Joshua, I want you to answer the important shoe on the other foot test, but in the course of your answer, please address the campaign finance uh, question. And you told the New York Times, if Cohn is correct and the president conspired with him or aided and abetted him in violating a campaign finance law to benefit Trump during the election, that would be an extraordinarily troubling concern that obviously merits comprehensive congressional investigation and political accountability. It's less apparent whether standing alone it qualifies as a high crime or misdemeanor. My question is, what kind of bribery would you think would qualify as a high crime or misdemeanor since this is in fact a crime? Uh, of course. Well, you know, I, I have to, you know, I think one of the things that's tricky here is that when you say to somebody, I'm not impugning your motives, I'm just asking the question about your motives. Uh, that could be interpreted uh, unfairly. And I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt and trust that you're not doing that. But, you know, I, I do think, uh, and obviously people have questioned your motives, and I, and I would hope that you that they would extend the same principle. You know, I, I think, you know, I would have written this book, uh, I stand by everything in it, uh, the criteria that Larry and I applied, and I hope that you applied the same ones. Um, you know, we don't have the president tweeting about how our book is his best defense, but you know, we were trying to make the point uh, points that we would feel comfortable with in 10 years, in 20 years, and in 30 years, and that we would have made 10, 20, and 30 years ago. Uh, and look, you know, as far as I can tell, a significant part of Trump's base and his Twitter account are in fact actively prosecuting an impeachment against Hillary Clinton's hypothetical presidency. And so there is some measure uh, of how that side might have uh, thought about it. Mm -hmm. You know, I do agree that the, this is a circumstance that requires uh, principled thinking and that, you know, hackery and that fashioning arguments to suit the needs of the moment is not the right way to think about the impeachment power. On the other hand, the impeachment power calls for a political judgment sensitive to current circumstances. And the question of whether a particular president's conduct does in fact threaten the democratic system in a, in a corrupt or abusive or traitorous manner. Uh, and the question of whether it is then wise to go ahead with impeachment instead of other ways of addressing presidential misconduct are questions that are inevitably answered by reference to the political circumstances that prevail at that point in time. Mm -hmm. And as much as we want to emphasize the timelessness of some of these principles and the broader design with which when, within which they unfold, uh, it's not entirely fair to say that an account of impeachment sensitive to current political dynamics is nothing but hackery, because by giving this power to Congress and designing it by reference to the stability of democracy as a whole, the framers intended that it would be exercised in part uh, by reference to political circumstances and understandings. Now, in terms of the question that you and, and in terms of the question that you've asked, Jeff, about campaign finance, the point I was making there is, is, is as follows. There's obviously a lot of debate about whether Cohen's concession in his plea bargain, his statement in his plea bargain, that he knowingly made these payments and did so at the direction of a candidate, obviously President Trump. Um, there's a question about whether that is sufficient evidence, whether it's reliable, whether it's trustworthy, uh, whether if it is, it's enough to establish that the president himself knowingly violated uh, federal campaign finance laws. Uh, and, I, and Alan could speak about that far more eloquently than I could. And there's obviously a debate about whether the president committed crimes and whether uh, Cohen's uh, plea uh, evidences that fact. What I had in mind was a sort of broader point, which is, as we say in the book, not all impeachable offenses are crimes, uh, but also not all crimes are impeachable offenses. 
if the president had done nothing else, and all we knew was that the president had done this specific thing, that the president otherwise ran a spotless campaign, but that this particular campaign finance violation occurred, you know, several people were paid off in this manner, and he knew about it, and it did break the federal criminal laws. You know, it's not apparent that that conduct poses so great a threat to the democratic system or so necessarily altered the outcome of the election or, or makes it so unimaginable that he could remain the president of our democratic society that it would rise to the level of an impeachable offense. And it would certainly seem to me doubtful that it would be worth the national trauma of an impeachment solely to address that one concern. Uh, this, is an area, this, this is an area, and I think this is often true of impeachable offenses, where you're not dealing necessarily with a single dastardly deed. Impeachable offenses are in some respects defined by a pattern of conduct that together undermines democracy and evinces a particular unwillingness to abide by the requirements of the rule of law. And so standing alone, this offense, I doubt, would qualify as impeachment, as impeachable or make impeachment a, a wise move. I think the real question is the bigger picture, which for now remains obscure to us. Well, I agree with that. And I think the big picture is important. By the way, let me be very clear. Under campaign finance law, and I've checked them now very carefully, I sat and I read them all and I came to the same conclusion Justice Scalia came to. I don't understand. Them. I don't understand what's permitted, what's not permitted. Uh, but one thing is clear. A candidate may contribute any amount of money he wants to his campaign. I'm good at extreme hypotheticals, so let me set one out. President candidate Trump announces he's not taking any money from anybody. He's going to fund his campaign with a billion dollars of his own money. And a hundred million of that is going to be given as hush money to women all over the world who have accused him truthfully or falsely of all kinds of conduct. No campaign violation by him. His treasurer would be obliged to list those as campaign contributions from the candidate. But by the way, it couldn't have had an impact on the election because the reporting period but the payment of this hush money, which was perfectly legal, was after the election was over. So I think everybody has to take a deep breath when they look at the campaign violations that Cohn talked about. He didn't inculpate the president. He exculpated him when he said it was at the direction of the president and implied that the money was coming from the president himself. Look, if the money came from corporate funds or other things, those are all violations that can be looked into. But in the end, if the president paid the money as hush money, it's simply not a crime or an offense at all. And so I agree you have to look at the big, big picture. And the big picture is a disturbing one. Um, look, I'm not here to defend uh, President Trump. I didn't vote for him. I voted for Hillary Clinton. I don't agree with many of his policies at all. And people who challenge my motive, you know, come up with the most absurd motives. I want to be on the Muzzle Supreme Court. I'm turning 80 this week. I want to be his attorney general. I'm being paid for it. I'm being paid by Fox. I'm the only guy who has never received, uh, uh, who's on all the TV stations uh, and never received a penny from anybody. I'm stating what I think is the right approach. You may disagree, you may agree, but the enmity that has been directed against me by my old liberal friends is unbelievable. For making the kinds of arguments I'm making here on the show, I have people who just have stopped talking to me after years and years of friendship. And that's just not the way conversation and democracy ought to go. So I really want to thank you for giving me an opportunity to lay out my views in a coherent way with a brilliant opponent. Uh, I don't mean to in any way imply that my opponent would not pass the shoe on the other foot test. I'm suggesting there are some out there uh, who are making extreme arguments 
and would be making somewhat different arguments if the shoe were on the other foot. And that's very common. Well, it is the greatest honor today. for we the people to have provided a platform for these two brilliant debaters to discuss their new books and to talk about the most contested constitutional question facing our republic in such an engaging and civil manner. I want to thank Alan Dershowitz and Joshua Matz and encourage listeners to read their books, The Case Against Impeaching Trump and To End a Presidency, The Power of Impeachment. Alan, Joshua, thank you very much indeed for joining. Thank you for hosting. Appreciate it. Thank you. Today's show was engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by Jackie McDermott and Scott Bomboy. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Jackie McDermott. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to We the People on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please recommend the show to your friends and colleagues so they too can enjoy weekly constitutional debate and be enlightened by this invaluable opportunity for constitutional education. Also, always remember, dear We the People friends, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, engagement, passion, commitment, and love of constitutional learning of people across the country who are like you who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. And after hearing today's debate, how could you not be inspired by its centrality and urgent need? So please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen. Thank you.